0: Well, let me get into the word this morning. I have the privilege of continuing a teaching series that we started a couple of weeks ago. It's a teaching series we've been simply calling How to Be Wise. And there's a whole lot of conversation, a lot of buzz surrounding this series because uh, there's just this felt need for uh, more wisdom in our life. And we've simply been defining wisdom as skill in living, skill in living. And we've been defining it also as competence with regard to life's realities. And we've been saying over and over that wisdom shines in that space in life where the moral rules don't really help you. We know what's right and we know what's wrong for the most part, but there's 60, 70, 80% of the decisions and choices that we will have to make in life will live in that realm where the moral rules don't help us. And so in that space in life, we need wisdom more than anything. In particular, as people of God, people of faith, we need God's wisdom. Uh, to help us when we get to those forks in the road where we need to make decisions. And we've been encouraging you over the last several weeks to seek the wisdom of the Lord, not just seek it and have it in here, but to put legs on it and to apply it to your life. And so far we've covered a number of topics, but today I want to talk about how to be, how to be culturally wise. I want to talk about cultural wisdom Some of you, uh, unless you live in a cave, you know that we're in this interesting cultural moment right now, or we've never been more divided than we we are right now. Where you couldn't, as one preacher's put it, you, you can't slice the demographic pie into any more slices because we've already figured out all of our differences and we've already divided the pie into a million different slices. We are in a cultural moment well we need to know how to be culturally wise and so this subject of culture touches on a number of different touchy hot button subjects subjects like race subjects like ethnicity subjects like identity these things deal with our history good bad and ugly these touch on subjects like equality and justice and the list goes on and on and on and more and more we need Cultural wisdom. And there's a buzzword or a buzz phrase floating around in corporate circles, and it's made its way into the church a phrase called cultural competence. We need to be culturally competent. And cultural competence is simply the ability of an individual to understand and respect values, attitudes, beliefs, and more that differ across cultures and to consider and respond appropriately to these differences. Cultural competence. As we lived in this beautiful multi-ethnic community, some of you work in really diverse spaces, and as we're building this multicultural, multi-ethnic church, among the things that we need is cultural wisdom. Amen? Among the things that we need is cultural competence, because somebody said that cultural competence demonstrates humility through suspension of judgment and the ability to learn new things about new and might i add different kinds of people and i don't know maybe it, maybe you're new and you haven't figured out our ethos yet or you haven't really uh come to a firm understanding of who we are but this lives at the center of the target of who we are here at the South Suburban Vineyard Church. and Every couple months, I feel like I need to reintroduce us to this really important value that we have of difference and diversity, particularly in the kingdom of God. This subject that I'm talking about today is deeply connected to SSV, to our mission, to our values, to who we are and who we are becoming. And so I want you to lean in this morning as we talk about this particular kind of wisdom. I'm calling this message this morning simply growing in cultural competence, growing in cultural competence or cultural wisdom. And today I want to make a case for why we need to grow in cultural competence in general, but especially as the Church of Christ. And I can't impact or affect how other churches uh, grow and develop, but I, I, I've been given stewardship over how this church runs, and I feel responsible. Right? I feel responsible to take us through this and hear what the Lord has to say. And so I want to make a case for cultural cultural competence, and at the end of that, I want to give us some pro tips, some really practical pro tips to walk that out. Um, you can start with me this morning. We're going to be looking at a passage of scripture in Matthew chapter 28. Would you meet me there in your Bibles, if you have them? There are Bibles on the edges of your row, by the way. If you want to follow along in a paper Bible, you can also follow along uh, with your phone or your tablet. Um, We'll also be projecting the words on the screens. Matthew chapter 28, we're talking about cultural competence this morning. And while you find that, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to come into your house, to gather in your name and gather with your people to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, we watch the news, we're on social media, we know that if if we've never needed you before, we need you now. If we've never needed your wisdom to come straighten things out, we need you now. As the election year looms and things get more nasty out there, Lord, we need your wisdom so that your people can show up really, really well. And as we come today from our separate corners of the world and culture, and race, and ethnicity, into your house, and this diverse, sacred, safe place, Lord, would you teach us, would you lead us, come Holy Spirit, do what only you can do. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, amen. And so I want to give you three things this morning as I make this case for why we need to be culturally competent uh, as the people of God, and the first thing that I want to start with this morning is that we must consider the mission, right? Consider the mission. This is not unimportant. It's number one for a very specific reason, because in our everyday work or day life, we can get distracted. We can be busy doing all the things and forget why we're doing all the things. As we gather here on Sunday morning for Sunday worship, and as we gather in our small groups, and as we gather in smaller meetings to connect with one another, I feel it necessary, especially as we talk about this subject, to really reacquaint ourselves with the mission. That's why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing. And if we consider the mission, if we go back to the mission, we have to revisit the commission, And that's where we pick up in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, he says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this. I am with you always even to the end of the age. Now, if you have been around church for any length of time, this isn't an unfamiliar passage to you. This is a familiar text to some, but I realize that it might be uh, new to others. This is famously known as the Great Commission, and it's known as great for a couple of different reasons. It's concise Although some of us misunderstand the commission, I think it's hard to misunderstand. It's very descriptive. It has a measure of urgency to it. It's central to who we are, who we're becoming as believers. And I think the other thing that makes this commission great is that it comes from Jesus. And it comes from Jesus at a time where he was moments right after his resurrection, right? And so Jesus has spent his time on earth. He'd been walking with his disciples, teaching them to take this thing over. When he dies, he's been predicting his death, but also predicting his resurrection. And so the resurrected Jesus is standing before them now, and he's got something to say. And I would suppose that if the person who said, I'm going to die, but I'm going to get up, if that person dies and they get up, you better listen to whatever they have to say to you. That person is therefore worthy to be listened to, get to the edge of your seat, because Jesus has got something to say. And what he's pointing his 11 disciples to, and therefore us, because we're the disciples of the disciples of the disciples, he's pointing us to our one common cause as people of faith. Now this thing has gotten splintered. There's so many denominations. But if you boil it down, this is the one cause that we're supposed to live for. The one cause that we're supposed to die for and that cause is this, to make disciples. There's paragraphs of information wrapped up in that commission. Go and make disciples. Disciples of Jesus. Disciples of the gospel, carry this thing forth, duplicate ourselves over and over, take it everywhere you go. The cause is simple. Go and make disciples of Jesus. And the church has generally lived this out in three main ways, and I want to run them down for you real quick just so you have a little bit of a lesson. The first is through evangelism. And evangelism is one of those $7 Christian words that simply means taking this gospel message about Jesus Christ and telling it to anybody who will listen, telling it to friends and strangers, telling it to folks at your job, places where you live, the little ones that you're raising, your family around the dinner table, take it to work, take it to the marketplace, take it to Schnucks, take it to Meyer, every single place you go, take this message about Jesus Christ. Uh, everywhere so that people will know and we've been doing I guess a pretty good job of that because if you're here you heard about it somehow right maybe you heard about it from a co-worker or you were discipled as a parent or you saw it on a billboard or you turned on the television and there was a preacher or somebody posted a link to a Sunday service on Facebook somebody has been evangelizing I know because you're here And this is one of the really important aspects of making disciples. So you spread the gospel, and some people will move toward Christ and give their life to Christ. There's a second component to this, discipleship. Discipleship is another $7, a Christian word that simply means, listen, we don't mature in the faith on our own. People don't come to faith, and then we just scooch them out the door and say, hey, figure it out. Instead, through discipleship, we walk them through the left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot steps of becoming more like Jesus. We help people discover how to let Jesus work in their life, in their singleness, in their marriedness. That's why small groups are important. That's why kinship groups are important. That's why these special friendships that are being built... Some of them, my people who are new in the faith, they partner with somebody who's been doing this for a while, and that left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot, is how we walk this thing out through discipleship. There's another component to this that can't be understated, and that's leadership development. Because some people will come to faith, and as they move toward faith, we see them, and we come alongside them through discipleship, and some of those folks will have some leadership on them. You'll look at them and you say, hey, when you talk, people listen. Hey, you, you never walk through that door without a trail of people behind you. You've got influence, you're gifted in this area. And so we spot that and we cultivate that and leaders are developed so that we can keep planting churches and keep spreading this message to anybody who will hear evangelism, discipleship, leadership development, and we do it again. And we do it again and we do it again. That is what's wrapped up in this mission, this co-mission, as we make disciples together I hope that all makes sense to you because to me it seems pretty simple, right? Seems hard to mess it up, and yet we have messed it up. It's not that we haven't evangelized. It's not that we've forsaken discipleship, although some of us have forsaken discipleship. It's not that we aren't developing leaders. It's that the church generally is trying to do all of that in homogeneous units. And segregated, homogeneous units, it was Dr. King who said, famously said that the most segregated hour of the week is what? Sunday morning. Now, you might not be able to tell that by looking around this room. But in the average Sunday morning situation, King was right. Decades ago, he was right, and he's right today. And so we've got a portion of the commission, right? But we've filed it down a little bit to make it easy and to be comfortable for us. And so how do we fix it? How do we fix what we've gotten wrong about the commission? Well, that brings me to my second point this morning. I would argue that we need to make the commission great again. I don't want to get, I don't want to start any trouble this morning. Come on. I know that's, a, that's some uh, attached to that slogan, and I'm using it just in case you're falling asleep. By the second point, I go wake you back up. We need to make the commission great again. Because it's diminished in its potency, because we've tried to do that in homogeneous units. But if you read verse 19 and you don't leave any words out, Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of what? All the nations. All the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And we're situated in this magnet of a place called America. And we're fortunate (laughs) because the nations have come to us. So we really don't have any excuse. And so we're really on the hook to really take this this commission seriously and greaten it again by not removing any words. Because if we have eyes to see it, it forces us to see diversity and valuing difference as a kingdom ideal and not simply a special interest. And I say that because some of us have said, "Well, well, listen, you can be into diversity if you're into that sort of thing. Maybe you got a mixed family and I can see why you would want to go to a multi-ethnic church or to be involved in that stuff, but don't force me into diversity. Don't force me into valuing difference. If you're into it, be into it. If you're not, just don't bother with it. Well, I, that feels extra biblical to me. That's a commission, but that ain't the great one. Because the great one sends us to Who? all the nations and those three words all the nations is a game changer because jesus knows that had he just said go and make disciples you already know where we would go actually we would go actually where we've gone to our kinds of people to our kinds of people And so if we go just to our kinds of people, and I'm making a case for cultural competency here, if we go to our kinds of people, who are we going to evangelize to? We're going to go evangelize to people who look like us, who vote like us, who are on the same side of the tracks as us, right? And if that's who we're evangelizing to, those are people who are going to move towards us. And guess who we're going to disciple? We're going to be discipling people who look like us, who vote like us, who are just like us. And if that wasn't bad enough, guess who's going to come to run the place? Who are the leaders that are going to get developed? People who look like us, and we're going to rinse and repeat and do it over and over and over again. And that's what we've done, the Christian church has done for, for centuries, and that's why we are where we are. That's why the church at large doesn't have an answer for the political pot that's boiling over. We don't got anything to say. We're not a credible witness because the corporate world has outpaced the church with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we've got the Great Commission. It's right here in black and white, and yet we have chose to do something easier to go to our kinds of people. And this preference-driven, lean, can infect our fidelity to the Great Commission, and we have settled for something far less. Far less. Some of you listening to me would argue that this is fuss over race and ethnicity and culture It's simply a divisive strand of a wokeism that has gotten out of hand. They say we should be colorblind in this world. They might even point to Paul's words in Galatians chapter 3. But if you want to point to Paul's words in Galatians chapter 3, let's go there for a minute, shall we? Paul, Galatians chapter 3 says, verse 26 says, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. Uh, They are no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. And they would say, see, Paul is saying uh, there's only one race, the human race, which sounds really good but it's kind of silly. I wish it were that simple, but it's not. This passage, as you can imagine, is easy to misunderstand. It's easy to misunderstand Paul's words and to mishear him saying that there is no race. There's no Jew, no Gentile, no black, no white, no Asian, Hispanic, Indian, Filipino. No, there's none of that. There's no class in the kingdom. There's no slave or free in the kingdom. There's no gender distinctions in the kingdom. But here's what you need to know. The oneness that Paul is talking about, and that's what he's talking about in this text, oneness has more to do with equality and less to do with our differences being unimportant. Listen, our sinful, selfish selves looked at humanity and we used our power somehow to assign value to some and rob it from others on the basis of what we look like, on the basis of class and all these other things. Listen, that toothpaste is already out of the tube and there's no putting it back and God knows this. And Paul is pushing us toward oneness and not toward sameness. Paul is pushing us toward oneness and equality in Christ and not sameness. Paul is making an effort to move us away from our human tendency to weaponize difference, race, class, gender, beauty, fame, and any social or physical thing that might make us different. Any physical or social thing that might assign value to some and rob value from others, Paul is challenging us to deal with our isms, our racism, our classism, our sexism, all the isms, because race matters to God. Ethnicity matters to God. Our collective difference, our cultural difference matters to God. Listen, what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 139, he says, You made all the delicate inner parts of my body, and you knit me in my mother's womb. Verse 14, Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. Now, I don't know what this says to you, but this says to me that God took his time when he was making me in you. Right. That this beautiful coat of chocolate skin, and it is a beautiful coat, wasn't given to me because God ran out of white skin. That the Lord wasn't just, okay, what what we got, what do we have extra left in the storeroom of of, of skin hues? Oh, we we got black? Okay, give that to Gino. We got any white left? Yeah, give that to Chris. (laughs) Like, he was just indiscriminate about it. No, my Bible tells me God took his time with me. Knowing all that would come with this chocolate-coated skin, he gave it to me anyway. And in his divine authority and power over creation and time and space, he situated me in my family of origin, in the region of the country uh, that I would live up and grow up in, situated me on the calendar of his events. Nothing happened by happenstance. And so I'm led to believe that my race matters to God, that my culture matters matters to him that the gender that you have and the language you speak and all the things that come attached and bundled to you it matters to the lord it is not to be ignored and god never intended us to be boiled down into some silly melting pot never intended that for us i think the lord intended for us to be a salad bowl You get the boiling down stuff and ingredients, you don't know what's in there. But if you look at a salad, you ever had a good salad? All them textures and and, and shapes and colors and flavors, they stay right intact. And I believe that that's what God intended for us to be. A salad, not a soup. But because of our human being towards sin and selfishness, because of our natural tribalism, Because we've got a black sharpie and we scratched out all the nations. We've lifted some up and put others down. We've got race, we've got class, we've got gender, and it's been weaponized, right? So this is why we need cultural competence because we're different and that difference is okay. And because God has called us to move toward that difference, we need to be competent with regard to the people that we're encountering, because frankly, we get kind of stupid when it comes to race and culture. We get kind of silly when it comes to interacting with people who are different from us. But many of us come by that silliness and that ignorance quite honestly, because we were raised, if you were like me, you were raised around homogeneous units. We went to black churches, we we went to black schools, our entire social network was exclusively African-American and I wasn't having meaningful interactions with different kinds of people until I was 18 years old at the University of Illinois. I needed some wisdom. And so do you. When you grow up in a pool of sameless like your culture is like the water you swim in. And you don't know that you're in that water until you, get into, until you climb out of it or you're into somebody else's space. And I wasn't particularly, particularly aware of my culture until I had to spend some time in somebody else's. And some of you have a similar story, similar trajectory in life where God put you in a place that was foreign to you or gave you some people and friends where you had to learn how, how to get down. Learn how to conduct yourself and learn not to go flopping around and landing awkwardly on people. Am I the only one? Our race and our culture is super awesome, right? Our culture is the music we like, it's the food we eat, it's what we find funny. It's the art, but it's also mixed in with our history and our pain, our struggle, our privilege our disadvantages, our struggles, our shared context. And I say shared context because, you know, being married cross-culturally, uh, we really learned some things about each other's culture. and really come to value things about my own. I love our people. I, loved, I love being black, I love black culture. I love how nobody teaches you how to dab somebody up and, and, and how to just say a whole paragraph worth of something just in one look, right? You have that within culture. I went to my wife's job one time and I was walking and one of the security guards, African-American, he just, he, he just came up and right away we just dapped each other up, leaned in, gave each other that look, brother, you good, you good? And my wife was like, do you know him? <laughs> Technically, no. But that stuff is, it's caught, it's not taught, it's caught. Uh, you can be walking down the street and you can see a brother from around the way. You give him a nod. That's a paragraph. It's a whole paragraph of information. How you can inflect a word and the people in your culture, in your context. They can know exactly what you're talking about. That's beautiful. And then you have to go and, <laughs> and sit in somebody else's culture. And you got to learn that all over again. This is what we're up against. And we can't talk about culture, we can't talk about race, we can't talk about class without talking about our, our, our really, really shameful history, particularly in this country. Everybody's in this room, has got a story. Everybody's race and class and culture has some story like connected to that. There's some joy, but there's probably a whole lot of pain. There's some stuff we got to deal with. You're gonna have a black friend, you're gonna marry a black spouse, you're gonna marry all of that black pain in history and you gotta deal with it. You marry somebody who's Hispanic or you got a Hispanic friend, that Hispanic person comes with some history, they come with some baggage and you don't get to tell them to be quiet about who they are and how they came to be who they are. And on down the list. That's lazy. It's sinful, it's not winsome, and it's divorced from the mandate we have to go to all the nations. And not to just go to all the nations with our American power and importance, but to go humbly as Jesus did and come alongside. This is why it's important at this church to be a diverse community, because we say often that diversity here is not the end, it's the means. And some of you have been in organizations and in churches where you, could, you got the sense that the diversity was the end. The goal was like to have a couple of each and to be proud of the picture that you've taken together. But you didn't really wanna get in the trenches of all of this stuff that we have. I was talking to somebody the other day, he said, and he described uh, one of his coworkers as somebody who, 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 who was posing for the picture but didn't want you to take a video, which is just a shorthand of saying, we want to look good in the picture, but if, if, you, if you played out a video of how things were going, it would really tell the story. Lacking in depth, lacking in sensitivity, lacking in that humility that it takes to be around others, Slow to speak, quick to listen, and rather than trying to be interesting, we are trying to be interested in people's stories, in their pains, our pursuit of diversity is not the end, but it's the means. A means to what? A means to be the people who God called us to be equipped for the mission. Equipped for the mission. And what's the mission? To go to all the world and make disciples. To all, all the different kinds of people and to make disciples. And so this church that we're building here, we call a Love University. We call it the Institute of Higher Learning where we learn to love people that we don't get to pick. People that we don't get to choose. Such that whomever will walk through that door, we learn to love them. And cultural wisdom doesn't give you the exact blueprint of how to act. We're not giving you a little script that says if a black person comes in, you say this. Or you shake their hand this way. Is it a white person? You thumb through your little cards. But somebody says wisdom doesn't tell you what to do, but wisdom helps you become the kind of person that responds well no matter what the moment throws at you. I'll tell you that again. Wisdom doesn't tell you what to say and what to decide, but it builds you into the kind of person that responds well when a dicey decision is before you. When there's a curious fork and you gotta make a choice. Wisdom, particularly cultural wisdom, tells you to go slow in an environment that you haven't been in before. To move slow and decisively when you're engaging difference, to use your two ears more than you use your one mouth. It's the means and not the end. And the goal is that all these different kind of people move toward SSV as we try to set the table. What you come to do is you come to see value in people and in places where you missed it before. Maybe you didn't grow up around any Asian folks or any Indian folks or any black folks or any white folks. And so our hope is that when you move toward SSV, as we try to set the kind of table where a diverse cross-section of people can gather around, as you move toward this table, you see and engage with people who you have no reference for before. And as you sit in the small group, and as you sit around the dinner table with people and you hear their stories, you humanize them rather than otherize them. And you come to say, I didn't know there was that richness in that person. I didn't know. Living in a homogeneous environment, you had to use the scraps of information that you can gather and form an opinion about a whole group of people that you've never had meaningful interactions with. What are the odds that you'll get that right? And if you grew up in a broken situation, you had people lying to you. Or even if they were well-meaning, they were telling you a piece of what they experienced or a piece of what they heard. And if you were like me, you had to unlearn some things, sometimes the hard way. And so what we're building here is a love university, a place where you can learn to see value in places and people where you might have missed it before. Why? So we just have a good time and hang out here? Well, there's going to be some of that, but I point you back toward the mission. So that as you discover value in different races and different types of people, when you go to work, you're going to see somebody that look like the person that you come to love in here. And you go, well, maybe God loves them too. Maybe that person is also made in the image of God of much worth and value. And maybe they are also worthy of my time, attention and God's kingdom, light, and love as it flows through me. Whether it be at work, whether it be at school, whether it be in the marketplace, whether it be somebody you know or a stranger, you're learning in here how not to be a moron when it comes to the very delicate matter of race, culture, class, et cetera. Let's not even get started with politics. Hopefully, you can rub shoulders in here with some folks who believe radically different than you believe. Who see the world way different than you see it. And my, good, my, 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 my hope is that this would be the kind of place where we can have, that, have them same kind of folks under, the, under this roof. And we can have small groups where we talk about politics and faith, and we can wrestle these things to the ground. Why do we need to do that in here? Thank you, Stephen, for leading that small group. Why do we need to do this in here? So we don't act a fool when we have to do it out there. Our pursuit of diversity is, means, not the end. The goal is a diverse Christian community so that we can engage with what? The mission. Now, why is this important? This brings me to my third thing. Uh, Because proximity matters. Uh, Proximity matters. We're talking about proximity, we're talking about closeness. What we're really talking about is the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation, this whole thing that happens within God's kingdom where things that are uh, historically at odds or historically divided come together um, under the umbrella of faith in Christ's mission, the ministry of reconciliation. And so if you're going to engage in the ministry of reconciliation, and we must, if we're going to go to all the nations, we must understand that the ministry of reconciliation is a, is, is, is a contact sport. You can't, you can't phone this in. You can't Skype this in, you can't FaceTime this in, you can't Zoom this in. You got to rub up against that which you are to be reconciled to. And if you're going to take this commission seriously, white man, white woman, you're going to have to rub up against a black person or two. So ready yourselves. My black brothers and sisters, if you're to take the commission seriously, you might have to rub up against... A white brother or a sister or an Asian brother or sister or an Indian brother or sister. You know what I'm saying? This doesn't come in the sort of color where we don't have to rub up against each other and talk to one another and ask curious questions to one another. It is what it is. It costs what it costs. And some of you have paid the cost to be in a ministry like this. Some of your family said, what are you doing at that, at that church? With those people, they see you posted up on social media and and your friendship group now looks like the United Nations and they can't make sense of it. (laughs) Tell them you're preparing yourself for the mission. Because proximity matters. Listen, we're situated in a time where we're divided along every meaningful line and we're situated in a time where we're going to have to vote. We're going to have to take a side. we still reeling from George Floyd and all the stuff that went down in 2020. And there's something that happens every week, every month that, that just pours another bucket of gasoline on the flame. And we're, we're situated in a time where nobody would blame you if you just went to your own corners everybody would understand if you just siloed up with your own with your kind of people nobody would blame you but God nobody would have an issue everybody would understand but God And a wise man once said that if God is smiling at you doesn't matter who's frowning at you but if God is frowning at you it doesn't matter who's smiling doesn't matter who's, who, who gives you an okay or, or, or approval if God says move toward that which you're to be reconciled to. God calls us meaningfully toward him and others. This is the, one of the surest signs of the kingdom coming. And so I made a case for that. And so I want to give you uh, some pro tips as it relates to cultural competence. And I'm on page 15, guys. I've skipped a couple things. Uh, I want to give you pro tips. You all ready for the first pro tip? No, don't, 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 don't play with me now. You ready or not? Okay, the first one is stay woke. Stay woke. When did it become a bad thing to be woke? I think we want our word back. Can I confess to you that I am suspicious of the pejorative use Of woke. Woke means originally to be aware of and actively attentive to important societal facts and issues, especially issues of racial and social justice. When did it become bad to be awake and conscious and aware? What's the alternative? To be asleep, to be indifferent. How you got such an opinion about everything and you ain't watched the news? How you know everything about everybody and you haven't left the town you grew up in? Some of us are asleep and we're talking in our sleep with a lot to say no cultural competence, flopping all over the place, landing awkwardly on everybody, and you, sir, you, ma'am, are asleep. Jesus told his disciples to stay woke. You believe me? Matthew chapter 26, verse 40. (laughs) Jesus in the garden told his disciples to stay up, pray with them. Verse 40 says, then he returned to the disciples and found them what? Asleep. And Jesus said, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? In the vernacular, Jesus might say, couldn't you stay woke for one hour? Now, I want you to know before this goes viral, somebody posted a little clip. Jesus wasn't making social commentary here. I know that. So you know that. But what what was Jesus saying? Jesus understood that they were in an hour that required a measure of attentiveness to what was going on. Jesus understood and instructed his disciples to watch with him, to be awake, because the moment, the hour they were in, required a measure of vigilance, attentiveness, and awareness, and he was disappointed when he came back to them and found them asleep. What am I saying? This is the hour. And I'm not talking about that we need to agree with one another, but we need to be alert. We need to know what's going on. We need to be tent, alert, vigilant so that we know what's going on. And part of that means that we move toward, particularly when you have access to all this, look around you. In your seat, you can touch five or six different worldviews and perspectives. It's dangerous what we've become. It's sinful that we're asleep when we're called to be awake. And I think we want the word back. We wanna be alert. We wanna be awake. So that's pro tip number one. You ready for pro tip number two? Take naps. <laughs> they woke, but take naps. In fact, it was Dr. Cornell West that said, some of us woke folks need naps. And I couldn't agree with Brother West more on that point. I don't agree with everything. But when you've been awake for too long, you you get drowsy. You see stuff that's not there. You fight fights that aren't good fights. You open your mouth when you should be listening. You forget that this is a marathon and not a sprint. And some of us are maybe too woke for our own good. And we need a nap. Some of us have taken up causes or have engaged a cause to a degree where we're no kingdom good in those spaces. And we've ceased to be winsome when we talk and post on social media and we need a nap. And I say this with a great deal of authority because I've been in a space not too long from this point right here where I, I, I have showed up in rooms and I was moving around in spaces where I, I, I was fatigued. I had taken on things that weren't mine to carry. And I had ceased to be effective in certain rooms because when it came to this stuff, I just needed a nap. And Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn of me. Right? So Jesus says, Come and rest. He's still talking about yokes and burdens because the work is the work. It's heavy, it's hard, it's tough. But when we carry what he told us to carry, when we speak when he says speak, when we go only into rooms that he sends us in, he is the strong ox that we're yoked to and he by the spirit is doing the heavy lifting and so when we can rest in the one who knows who we are and what he's called us to do, we don't show up clunky. We don't show up in harmful ways that hurt people, stay woke, but take naps. Third thing here, and I'm a little over my time, is to be humble, and I can't express this enough. You gotta be humble. I mean, it's central to the, 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 the way of Jesus is to be humble, but I, I can't say it enough in this particular space. Humble before the Lord And our humility before the Lord uh, acquaints us with the kind of curiosity that you need in order to lean into these spaces well. The kind of curiosity that says, help me understand, dot, dot, dot. The humility that lets others know that you know that this world is big and you haven't seen all of it yet. That you are the expert of your story and your pain and your stuff. But you will let others be the expert of their own pain and their own story and their own stuff. There's a lot I don't know. And I know that. And there's a lot that I don't know I don't know. And so I move with humility. Again, I'm not giving you stuff to say in this situation. Say this in this situation. But now wisdom is helping you be the kind of person that will make it to that point regardless of who's in front of you. Humility moves us toward the right kind of ignorance about race, about class, about culture, about injustice, about inequality, and more. It's a humble ignorance. There's another kind of ignorance. There's the bad ignorance, right? Well, you're arrogantly ignorant. You know nothing at all, but you know everything. You know those people. I'm talking about the humble ignorance that says, I've been wrong before, let me move slow. Let me be slow to speak, quick to listen. Let me pursue understanding over agreement. There's a humility. And culturally wise people do this instinctively. They commit themselves to being learners. They commit themselves to a deep understanding that they know far less than there is to know. And so they show up, not with pomp and arrogance, talking loud and pretending to know. Their tone and their whole vibe is fairly tentative when they're on somebody else's turf. I'm trying to teach you how to be humble so that you can show up well, so that you can operate in cultural wisdom. Humble. Are you humble? Fourth and final one, worship team, y'all can make your way up is to, uh, the fourth one is to avoid laziness. I think a lot of what's injurious about showing up in these spaces and doing harm, is just, it's laziness. It's a lot of things, but at the root of it is laziness. The way laziness shows up in those who are culturally foolish. You know anybody who is culturally foolish? who is just a grenade in any room where there's any kind of nuance and any kind of difference? You know anybody like that? Are you that person? It's a fair question. It's lazy to want to reduce something as large and complex and nuanced as race down to something that you can fold up and put in your pocket. It's lazy to suggest that we should just get over it and move forward. And to assume that we live in a post racial society, when one group got a centuries led head start on education and wealth building and power grabbing, that gap will never close. And so to say that was such a long time ago is lazy, it's disrespectful. And you'll never learn what you need to learn if you're being lazy. Because laziness makes it convenient to me, for me, at the cost of everybody else. It's lazy to talk more than you listen. It's lazy to speak before you think. It's lazy to simply go through your life making exceptions for people rather than changing the way you think about large, complex groups of people. We ever did this? I used to do it. Rather than change how I thought about white people, I would just say, oh, you're cool for a white guy. You're all right. You're not like the others how lazy that is? Rather than say, oh, I was wrong about all people. Let me change how I think about all those unique, complex people. I just made exceptions. You're all right. You, you can come in. I'll open the gate for you. It's lazy. And we'll never get where we get as a church being lazy. Can I say that you have to be especially vigilant in a church like this? Because to be in a community like this can really rock you to sleep because you think you've, you think you've arrived because you've had some black folks at your table. You think you've arrived because you, you, you got some white friends now. You think you've arrived because you have some Asian and Indian people in your small group. you, you got to stay really wake, awake when you're in a place like this because this is, this is just the beginning. And some of you would say, I've made exceptions for this person that I really like in my church, but I haven't changed how I think about the group. And I'm talking so forcefully today because the mission is so important. And we're raising kids in this space and who they are and who they're becoming and how they're going to see the world is going to be deeply impacted by how we show up as the people of god and how we lean into spaces that are not our own Where we're not native Where we don't know don't be lazy this could realistically be a three or four-parter, but I'll land the plane here. It's been challenged today, convicted today, to engage the way of Jesus for the sake of the mission and move toward cultural competence. The truth is, the thing that keeps us stuck to keep us away from that is our fear, right? And as we sang today about not being a slave to fear and leaning into the fact that we're children of God, called by His name according to His purpose, sent out to do His work. That's who we are. And so if you can stand with me, we're going to conclude with a final song. And as we sing this song, would you ask the Lord to show you you? Would you ask the Lord to... Put a mirror in front of you and reflect, help you reflect back to you what you need to change, what you need to be attentive to, where and who have you made exceptions rather than doing the really hard work, where have you, be, where, where have you been lazy, where have you fallen asleep, where you need to take a rest.